we've been on a journey for the past four weeks that we're going to continue. Uh, we've been looking at the second half of the book of Luke, where Jesus sort of turns his face to Jerusalem, and he begins his journey um, to Jerusalem, which is the location of his death, which is the location where he will be resurrect- resurrected, um, and sort of he begins to prepare for what we call Easter. And so we've been sort of uh, spending the past couple weeks in preparing our hearts for Easter um, and getting ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, And so we're looking at all of the red letters. They're sort of the highlighted red words that Jesus has spoken um, on his way to Jerusalem. And a lot of the conversations that he has had have been with his disciples or other people that he's met along the way. Um, And some of these conversations have been really comforting and some of them have been really jarring. Some of them are gentle and some of them are hard. Some of them are really easy to take on and some of them are super conflicting and difficult. And Jesus doesn't seem to care about any of that. Instead, what he cares about is he cares about proclaiming the kingdom of God. They all sort of aim at preparing Jesus's followers um, for what's going to happen at Jerusalem, what's going to happen in his death and in his resurrection. Um, But then also for what's going to happen after that, he's going to commission them and send them out to be a part of the mission of God, to build the church, to um, proclaim and demonstrate that the kingdom has come. And so he's doing all these things to make sure that they're, they're sort of ready. And they also, all of these conversations sort of invite the listener to embrace the kingdom, but also like give their lives for it. Um, and so that's what Jesus is doing in these conversations. And so uh, it really, if the journey and all of these conversations are about preparing his followers for, for what's about to come and living this life um, that they'll live after meeting Jesus. Um, Jesus really, he's going to have to address the subject of possessions, material possessions, resources, and money. And Jesus knew that how we deal as people with our possessions and with our resources is a pretty big deal. It wasn't that Jesus thought that possessions or resources, or money were inherently evil or inherently good. In in fact, uh, the way Jesus talks about money and possessions and, and the way that all of Scripture talks about money and possessions actually reveals that they don't really have a good or bad. Like, they're kind of neutral. Instead, the way that Scripture and Jesus talk about them is sort of that they're this tool. Um, they're this neutral tool, and it really depends on, well... How are you going to use it? Just like a hammer. Hammer has no good or evil, uh, but it becomes evil when you use it to break something or it becomes good when you use it to build something. And so Jesus kind of talks about our money and our possessions in the same sort of way. Um, it really, they really reveal that the way that we use our money and our possessions can either build up our relationship with God or it can hold us in complete bondage. So they really do have this huge bearing on our ability to embrace the kingdom and to devote our lives to the kingdom or not. And so, of course, Jesus had to talk about it. And, and so we do, too. Now, the interesting thing was is that we actually had this topic to be the topic that we talked about uh, when we first outlined the series. So back at the beginning of February, end of January. So we kind of already had this sort of planned out. Um, but at that point, we didn't really know that there was going to be like 
uh, empty grocery store shelves everywhere and like no toilet paper to be found and massive amounts of hoarding as a result of like fear and, and scarcity. And so I kind of, and we didn't know that like the stock market was like going to go down and we, we didn't know that schools were going to close and jobs were going to close and that there would be this like impending question about will there be a recession and will there be enough and how long will this go on? And so like as the week continued and all of this stuff started to come up, I started to get worried, like, maybe we're not supposed to talk about this. Maybe we just need to skip to what we're going to talk about next week, which is about joy. And who doesn't want to talk about joy? That's probably the right thing to do. Uh, but as I sat with it for a while, I was like, wait a second. Uh, I just kind of got this overwhelming sense that now more than ever is exactly the right time to talk about money and our possessions. Now, when we might have the most fears or the most insecurities and the most doubts um, about if we're going to be provided for, uh, if there's going to be enough food, if there's going to be enough toilet paper, uh, if we're going to have what we need, now's the time to talk about our possessions and our money. This is the perfect time. And so really, because um, more than anything, in this conversation, Jesus is calling his followers to lean into the character of God when they make decisions about how to use their possessions, about how to use their resources, and about how to use their money. And so Jesus take the wheel here we go. We're going to dive in. Um, now, we're going to be looking at this parable Jesus tells us, talks about uh, in Luke chapter 6. And it's this really, really weird parable. It's super weird. Um, most people actually just avoid this parable because it's so bizarre and hard to understand. Uh, a lot of people avoid it because they're offended by it. They're, they're like, how could this possibly be true? How could Jesus have said this? Um, and still others, there was this guy, he was a Roman philosopher named Julian in the 4th century. He actually looked at this parable and he used it to claim that Jesus was teaching his followers to be thieves and liars. And so in doing that, he was trying to warn all the people, stay away from the Christians. Um, but the reality is, 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 is this parable is really that confusing. It's, it's confusing because it makes this claim that is so audacious and so ridiculous about the radical generosity of God that it just seems Wrong, And so we're going to look at this parable. Uh, Jesus, it starts this way. Jesus told his disciples um, there was a rich master whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So the rich master called the manager in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My manage, my master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and, and I'm ashamed to beg. Now, it's really, really subtle, but in these first couple of verses, we actually learn a lot about the master. We learn really, really important things that we've got to hold on to in order to understand the rest of the parable. In the second verse, we actually discover that people like this master, that he's actually well-respected in the community. And the reason we know that is because people went to him and said, hey, your manager is taking advantage of you. Like, you need to know that he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He had heard rumors of this. And uh, typically, when people don't like you, they don't really care that you're getting taken advantage of. But 
People told him. So we know that the master is well-liked and respected among the community. But we, and we also know that he's well-liked and respected among the community enough for people to trust that if they go to him, the master will actually do something about it. And then we also discover that the master desires justice. He, like, he fires the guy on the spot. He says, that's it. What are you doing? Give me an account of your book. Go get your accountant book. Go get where all of your ledgers are taken care of and give it to me. You're done. We're finished. He fires the guy on the spot. But also we learn that the master is really merciful. He's full of compassion. And in fact, he's really, really generous. And the reason we know this is because actually back then, um, the master could have put the guy directly in jail. I mean, he had stolen from him. He could have put the guy in jail. The other thing he could have done is he could have sold him and his family into slavery so that, uh, uh, so that he could work to repay the guy's debt. And he doesn't do either one of those things. Instead, he just fires him. He kind of lets him off the hook. And in some regards, he's generous enough to just say, listen, we're just, we're, I'm not going to make you pay back all these things. We're just going to call it. We're done. You're fired. And he asks him for the book. And he asks for an account of where everything is, what all his debts are, and, and, and where he is in getting repaid. And it's really important that you remember the character of the master in order to get the rest of the parable. Now, the interesting thing about the manager's response is that he doesn't argue back. He's fired on the spot. Now, for you and I, that's kind of a normal thing. Like somebody might get fired and then security like escorts them out the building or whatever, and that's done. But in, in the Mideast culture, in the, in the ancient Mideast culture, actually what would happen is typically this guy is in this job because his father did this job and his grandfather did this job and his great-grandfather did this job. So someone getting fired wasn't just like, hey, we're going to sever this. It was the severing of families. And so if he wanted to fire him, it would actually enter into this like days-long negotiation of like, uh, hey, maybe I'll give you this, maybe I'll give you this, this whole thing. Um, and and in fact, the, the manager would come back to the master and say like, please, like, don't fire me. My father's done this job. I made a mistake. I can do this job. I, I repent. I'm so sorry. Can I, can I wrap up the accounts for you? How can I fix it? But the manager doesn't do any of that. In fact, the manager is completely silent. And in his silence, there's sort of a sense of guilt that falls on him, that, that we realize that he's guilty. He has stolen. He has done something wrong, and he's got no leg to stand on and no rebuttal to speak of. And he also, the manager also realizes that he's kind of ruined his life. He says, I'm too old to dig. He's too old to become a day laborer and kind of dig the ground and become a farmhand. But he also says, I'm too ashamed to beg. And, and what that actually means is that he wasn't old enough or he wasn't broken enough in order to beg. He wasn't lame. He wasn't blind. He, he wasn't diseased. And so as a result, like no one would really have compassion on him in order to give him the things that he needed as a beggar. And so words... He knows that word is going to get out about what happened. And once it does, no one is going to hire him. He's going to have lost their job, his job, and no one will hire him to manage his estate. And so the manager thinks of uh, all that he knows about the master, that he's kind and he's generous and he's merciful. And he comes up with this really, really bizarre plan, this unconventional plan, to make sure that when he leaves here, he has a job and is well thought of in the community. And he says this to himself. He says, I know what I'll do 
so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. People will accept me into their community. People will give me a job. Um, so he calls each one of his master's debtors and he asks the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, one replied. He man the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450, right in your own handwriting. That's really only 450. And then he asked the second one, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take the bill and make it 800. Now, it's important to understand that when this guy got fired, he loses all legal right to do anything with the master's accounts. Like, so what he's doing right now, this is illegal. He has no authority to do these things. He's, he's just supposed to bring the books to the master, not change them in the last minute. But what he does instead is he calls the people who owe the master money. And, uh, and, and he asks them, he says, lower the debt than what is actually owed. And, and then he's going to give the book to his master in just a second. And he knocks down the debt from 900 gallons of olive oil to 450. Now, and then 100 bushels of wheat to 800 bushels of wheat. Um, now, that really, that could, that doesn't mean anything to us because we're not farmers and we're not in that culture. And we don't know what it means. But here's how much money he actually knocked off the debt. Um, for both of them, it would be a grand total of 500 denarii each, which was the equivalent of a year and a half salary. So, so think about it for a second. You're in debt three years of your salary. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, let's knock it down to half of that. Uh, what are you thinking in that moment? You're elated. You're ecstatic. You are incredibly pumped up. You're feeling like you've gone to the moon and back and you're shouting it from the rooftops to tell everybody, listen, I'm only half in debt as much as I was before. This master is the most generous master in the world and praise be to his manager who made this happen for me, right? You've telling the entire city how wonderful this thing is, how, how they, the master and the manager in this moment have really become the heroes of the community because they've provided this huge economic windfall for the entire village. This is a game changer. Now, meanwhile, the manager brings the master his books. And you'd expect that the master is going to be furious. But listen to what happens. It's completely mind-blowing. Just mind-blowing. says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. I was following the story fine. And then why is he commending the dishonest manager? What is it that has happened here? Well, the manager, the master, he opens the books and he sees that the numbers have changed and that the numbers have changed in the people's handwriting. So they already know about this change. And the master's response is basically this. Well played. That's what he, he's saying to him. Well played. Have you ever had that moment where your kid does something that's so ridiculous, that's wrong, but so overly ridiculous that you're just like, I'm not even mad. Like that's, that's the most genius thing I've ever heard. I'm not even mad about that, right? Because you're so impressed by what they've done. And, and that's what the master is saying here. He's saying, well played. I'm not even mad about that. You see, the master has two choices in this very moment. The first choice is that the master can just remain quiet. 
The master can enjoy the furthered reputation that in this town he is now the hero, that he really already was because he was already generous. Or he can go to each of the debtors and he can tell them, hey, this change of your debt was actually unauthorized and it really you really need to pay the original amount in full, um, which would essentially turn all of the praise that he's getting in the town to this huge gripe session of the people saying, oh my gosh, he's unreasonable. He's so unfair. He's so greedy. How was I supposed to know that the manager had been fired? See, the manager is hedging his bets that the master will act with generosity because all that the master, all the manager has seen the master do is act with generosity. The manager's thinking, I've seen the way that he deals with other people in the community before. He's pretty generous. I saw the way that he dealt with me. He didn't send me to prison and he didn't enslave me or my family. That was real generous. And chances are that he's going to be generous again and let the debt be lessened and absorbed the consequences of my actions. Radical generosity. Now, the master isn't praising the manager because what he did for what he did, because what he did was like downright scandalous, like it was immoral. The master isn't, he acknowledges that the manager is dishonest, that what he did was wrong. But in fact, the manager, what he did was the manager downright took advantage of the master's generosity. He's an incredibly convincing scoundrel. What he's been being commended for is that the manager trusted the master would be generous to him. And then he acted on it. He, what he's being commended for is his confidence that the master would be generous and he would be gracious. He's being commended for having so much trust in the master's generosity that he risks everything and puts all of his trust and generosity on the master. That's what he's being commended for, seeing his generosity and leaning into that character and in some ways taking advantage of it. Now, again, Jesus is not saying this is the right thing to do because this is how he ends the parable. He says, for people in this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is grouping the manager into the people of this world, the people who don't follow God, don't know Jesus. And Jesus says that even people in this world are smart enough to recognize generosity and say, I'm going to take advantage of that. And what the manager did was take advantage of the master's generosity. As backward as it seems, Jesus is encouraging us to do the same. Not to take advantage as in abuse or take for granted or make unfair demands or exploit God's generosity. But instead to take advantage of God's generosity by making good use of the opportunity that's offered in God's generosity. See, you can use your worldly wealth and your possessions and your toilet paper to bless those around you because God is so generous that even when the worldly possessions are gone, you will still have abundant life. So basically, Jesus is saying, listen, you can be generous with others 
because God will be generous with you. You can take advantage of God's generosity and therefore be generous with lots of different people when it comes to your possessions and to your money. Now, many of us are like, we hear that and we're like, yes, I do believe that God is generous. I do believe that's true. I, he has been generous to me and I can be generous with others. And we're like, yes, I can do that, but not right now. Not right now, because do you see the grocery stores? And do you see the prices on toilet paper? And do you see what's going on? Like, I will wait until another time to be generous. I will wait until this crisis is over to be generous. So often we have this idea in our head that when we reach a certain income, then we'll be generous. Or when we have a certain number of toilet paper rolls, then we'll start to give them away. Or we'll be generous, and then we'll be generous with the others around us. But but I don't have quite enough to be generous with yet. So many times that is how our attitudes come, that well, when I get here, then then I'll start trusting in God's generosity. Then I'll have enough to give. But Jesus follows this whole thing up by saying this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What Jesus is saying is don't be deceived. If you can't trust God's generosity while you have very little, then you're not going to trust his generosity when you have a lot. So the amount that you have isn't actually the thing that determines how much you will give. Instead, what changes us is that until generous people, what changes us into generous people that are able to give is if we've chosen to accept the generosity of the master who has given us everything and changed our life. Now, you know, in the parable, when the manager was fired, he was looking at a life where he didn't have a job and he didn't have a way to provide for himself and he didn't have a community to belong to. He was really looking at a life of poverty. And when the master accepts the debt change, It means that he has essentially absorbed the consequences of the manager's past life, his deceit and his dishonesty and his thievery. The poverty that was supposed to be the manager was absorbed by the generosity of the master. And because the master accepts the debt change, in a sense, he sort of pays the price for the manager to have an entrance into a new community into a new place of belonging, into a new job. He gives him this new life and this new start. The master pays the price for his salvation. And the manager becomes rich. This is actually exactly what Jesus did for each one of us on the cross. That although he dwelt in the riches of heaven, he chose to become poor and to dwell among us. Although he was innocent, he absorbed the violence of sin of others that others had unleashed and he absorbed the consequences of those sin and that brokenness and that debt so that we might have entrance into a community, that we might have entrance into a place of belonging, of new life and purpose. And then he offers it to the very ones who had done him wrong, you and me. See, we're the dishonest, horrible manager and Jesus is the unending, generous master. 
We can't change our sin, but we can be shrewd enough to see generosity when it looks us in the eye and say, I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to take advantage of the generosity of our God and say yes to this generous offer of a new life and new purpose and new belonging that he offers. Now, it's when our lives have been completely transformed, like when we accept this generousness and we root it in the generosity of our God, it's then that we can now live in a whole new way that takes advantage of God's great generosity. We can live without fear of being generous. Because God is so much more generous than we could ever be. So you can't give, you can't outgive God. If you have like a handful of something and you give it away, God dumps a bucket on you and new blessings and new ways to be generous to you. He pours it out. And it's this process of continually and regularly giving our possessions and money away that actually keeps us free from the fear that there might not be enough that results in the bondage of us being bound by our possessions. When it comes to our possessions and living in the radical generosity of God, it's easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than think yourself into a new way of acting, right? If we just keep waiting for us to really think about this thing, we're never going to get there. God knows that. And so God actually put in place in the very beginning of scripture, he established this discipline that would help us break free of the controlling power of our possessions and our money and all that it can have on our lives. He gave us this discipline in order to break free from the bondage of trusting money and resources instead of trusting in God's generosity. And he actually called it the tithe, which is a word that literally means one-tenth or 10%. It's this idea, it's really simple. It's this idea that the person would take the first 10% of their income, what the Bible calls the first fruits, and, and they would bring it back to God in order to advance the kingdom, to sort of say, hey, listen, I, I, I recognize that I could just trust this, but I'm going to trust the giver rather than the gift. I'm going to trust the one who provides more than the provision. And so it's this regular giving of of, uh, giving and being generous that creates generosity in us. I think that God takes this tithing thing really, really seriously. And I'm not trying to make the argument that, like, the global pandemic that we're in the middle of right now has anything to do with us not tithing. That's not what I'm saying. However, I would say... That when people are selfish and when people hoard all the resources for themselves and when people look at the world and say, this is all for my taking and this is all for me, we do wind up in situations where communities and our lives suffer. And you can actually see some of that hoarding happening right now. In fact, in this place in scripture, God equals the failure of tithing or giving generously as sort of robbing God. In Malachi, God turns to his people and he says, will you, a mere mortal, rob God? Yet you rob me. And you ask, how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and offerings, you're not giving generously. You're not giving back to advance the kingdom. God is saying you're not giving the first fruits and that equates to robbing God. 
But there's also a blessing that happens when we practice generosity. We're not only freed from the bound, the bondage that can happen of fear and worry and insecurity about our possessions, but also there's a blessing that happens. And in Malachi chapter three, right after that other verse, it says, bring the whole tenth into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Almighty Lord. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. What God is saying is test my character. Test my generosity. See what happens. If you give back, you will see an abundance of heaven pour down on you. And God desires to give that to us. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. That somehow by tithing 10%, you've unlocked this magical potion that if you do it, there's sort of this guarantee that you will now become rich. And that if you give money, then more money will show up on your doorstep like magical voodoo because that's not it. It's not really that tithe enacts the blessing. It's actually that increased trust in God brings the blessing. It's that when we increase our trust in God, that it's followed up with this action and response that enacts blessing. See, whenever we have faith to trust God with more of our lives, with more of our stuff, with more of our money, we find ourselves more blessed because God is abundantly generous. And that blessing can be experienced in lots of different ways. It's not just monetary. Sometimes the blessing that comes is unexpected income. Sometimes it's new job opportunities. Sometimes it's reduced expenses or provision that for a need that is in completely different way than you would have expected. Sometimes it's a greater commitment with less. And sometimes it's being able to witness the transformation and the blessing that's happening in a neighbor's life or in a community. And you can trust God. You can trust God with the relationship Uh, With relationships, you can trust God with your future children. You can trust God with your marriage. You can trust God with your vocation. You can trust God with your health. You can trust God with your future, but you can also trust God with your possessions and your money. Paul writes this thing to Timothy, who's like a younger mentee. He's like the pastor of this really small church. Um, And what Paul says to him is he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And what Paul is telling Timothy to tell the congregation is to not put their hope or their trust or their confidence in wealth or how many provisions or possessions they can secure. He says, don't lean into those things. Don't trust your bank account. Don't trust the stock market. Don't hoard your supply of toilet paper or hand sanitizer more than you trust God's generosity. Because you will never be able to outgive God. And when we put our hope in the one who richly provides, we will discover that God has an enormous outpouring of blessing and generosity for each one of us. And so during this time of scarcity, during this time of craziness, during this time when it, you feel like there just might not be enough, 
My encouragement to you is to find some sort of regular way to be generous, to practice generosity, to give to the kingdom so that you might proclaim and demonstrate that the kingdom is here. All right, guys, I just want to open up uh, to some live questions. Um, Chris, what do we have? Do we have any questions? Oh, okay, great. Um, the question is, right now things are really tight financially. Um, there's no way I could give 10%. We'd have no groceries. Uh, I'm really just, am I really just supposed to give up groceries and trust that it will all be okay because God is generous? That is a fantastic question. Um, the reality is, is, is 10% is what God calls us to give. Uh, and, and he kind of says, hey, you can live on the 90%, but, but I want the 10% back. However, sometimes getting ourselves to a place where we're able to be generous with the full 10% is a process. And so perhaps the, in this season right now, where your, your next step, your next right thing to do is maybe just figure out, okay, well, what's, what's 1%? What is a way that I can be regularly generous that is possible? That's not giving up the whole groceries. Um, and in doing that regular 1% of giving or, or whatever that might be that you feel like you could do, you actually will begin to build some trust with God and discover that, hey, I, I am okay. Uh, God did come through in these other ways. God did provide generously in these other ways. And so my encouragement for you is to not throw all the groceries out the window, but instead to start small. Um, I know that us as a church, you know, our budget that we have for the whole year, um, I would love for us to get to a place where we're giving 10% of our um, of, of what it is that is given to us to uh, global partners and, and to just freely be able to say, hey, here's 10%. It's, it's going to these global overseas ministries. Um, the challenge that we have is our budget is so small and so scaled down that, that we can't do that right now. And so my plan is, okay, we're going to do 2%. And that's where we are right now. Um, we're at 2%. And slowly we're going to increase that as we learn to be a more generous uh, congregation. And, and uh, our goal is to increase that to the full 10% and have that be going overseas. And so I think that it's sort of the same process of sort of slowly figuring out, all right, this right now it's 1%, but next year, next year, I, I'm hoping to build enough trust with God that, that I can do 2% and, and going from there. And I think that, um, I think that that would be a beautiful journey to embark on. Uh, another question. Um, oh, what is the church planning to do to help and be generous to the community in this time? And that's a great question. So right now we're kind of scrambling in, try, in terms of trying to figure out where the best help is. Um, so I've had, um, I'd encourage everybody to put their ear to the ground and try to understand who needs help. There's been a lot of conversation about um, uh, children who may need daycare, whose parents are at work, or families that might need food, and all of those sorts of things. And, and as a church, this is something that we can all be doing, is sort of put our ear to the ground and figure out who does need help and what does that look like. Um, and then we can rally around those things. I know that um, I was at um, my kids' elementary school on Thursday talking to the, um, the counselor and said, hey, if it shuts down, which families need food? How can we 
provide those things. Um, their response at the time was the county is going to provide um, breakfast and lunches. And in fact, if you're in this area locally, um, Clarksburg High School is the location for that. Um, but then there was a group of churches in the area that are part of the Vulnerable Children's Network that kind of rallied around and began a conversation to say, okay, but they might need more than that. What about dinner? What about the parents who um, who can't get food um, there? How, how are they being fed? And so we're currently in some conversations to try to figure out who does need what um, and working with those um, the Vulnerable Children's Network and probably in conjunction with Clarksburg Can, which is the local food pantry, to see how we could rally around them and make them the heroes since they're the ones that continue to meet the need beyond this crisis. Uh, so, you know what? Uh, follow us on uh, our Facebook page and Instagram, and we'll probably be emailing um, updates also if we do have opportunities. But please email me if you know of, of a community who needs something. Um, Okay, one last question. Uh, this built really well on your money series from last year. Is there a place we can go back and watch it if we want to revisit it? Uh, yeah, you can actually. Uh, we did an entire series on money. It was called In God We Trust. And you can go to, Chris, where do I tell them to go? The Vimeo page. But is there an easier link? Okay, so we're going to add a link in the comments, um, and uh, and so you can click there to watch more. And really, the great thing about that series is it actually starts with this idea of explaining the ties and explaining where that comes from in much greater detail than I was able to unpack. Um, but then the rest of the series talks about how do you get to a place where you can um, – you can give generously. What are the structures and systems that you may need to set up in your life in order to manage your money well um, and take steps one at a time in order to go after those things? Um, and so it's a great series. I would encourage you to check it out. The other thing that's really great about it is we have people who, from our congregation who actually share about their experience in um, tithing or struggling with money or getting out of debt. And so uh, it, was, it was a really, really great series. So I'd encourage you to check that out if you're interested in doing that. All right, guys, we have no more questions, but let's go ahead and let's close in prayer. Father God, uh, how amazing is it that you are the God of so much abundant generosity? Uh, and as much in this story, we want to shirk away from saying that we are the, the manager who has taken advantage of your generosity. I just, I just really feel you calling us to say, no, 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 do it. Do it. Test and see. Take advantage of my generosity uh, by being generous to others, not by seeing what we can get for ourselves, but by pouring out that generosity to our friends and our family and our community and our churches. Father, would you um, begin to stir up in us um, a way that you're calling us to be generous, whether it is with our food or our resources during this uh feeling scarcity time, or it's our money also. Um, Father, would you just uh, uh, rise to the surface the way that you are calling each one of us? Would you allow your Holy Spirit to convict us and, and move us forward? But more than anything, that you would be the one that transforms our lives, that we'd be so convicted and moved and overwhelmed and convinced of your epic generosity, that we would become people who are incredibly generous. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.